Hi, I am your host, Anthea Pockroy, and this is the sixth episode of Unframed, a podcast which hosts conversations about the contemporary arts in South Africa. Today's episode is a special one. It is a tribute to the legendary South African photographer David Goldblatt, who died recently in June 2018 at the age of 87. I chat to Neil Dundas, a longtime friend of Goldblatt and the senior curator of the Goodman Gallery, where David has shown his work since the 1990s. We reflect on the life and work of Goldblatt, an internationally renowned photographer who gained recognition for his work during the apartheid era, but who has continued to take photos until the weeks leading up to his death. We talk about his work, his personality, his resistance to being called an artist, despite his abundant and invaluable contributions to the South African arts industry. The exhibition we refer to in the episode has just taken place at the Goodman Gallery in Johannesburg. It is called On Common Ground, David Goldblatt and Peter Magobani, curated by Paul Weinberg. It sets up a dialogue between these two photographers' work, which document the same period in South African history from vastly different perspectives. Enjoy listening to this episode, a tribute to David Goldblatt. Welcome to Neil Dundas, who is the senior curator at the Goodman Gallery in Johannesburg. Neil, I'm so excited to talk to you because we have known you for so many years and we've had so many informal chats for many hours and I'm so happy to have you on my podcast show. <laughs> I think it's really exciting that you're doing your podcast show and I'm very delighted to be on it with you. Thank you. I've asked Neil to come on the show for this tribute series to David Goldblatt as he's worked with him for many years through the gallery. David passed away on the 28th of June, 2018, and this was a huge loss for the South African and international art worlds. For how long did you know David, Neil, and how long did you work with him for? So I first met David actually 37 years ago, which seems now almost too extraordinary to be true. Um, and I started first at the Goodman Gallery 36 years ago in 1982. So, and I originally met David through his work with the Market Theatre um, and I was working at the time still in two fields, one being legal, ethical publishing, and another being within an advertising and communications agency. Um, and I was quite involved with some activist work around Steve Biko's trial and working with the pathologist who represented the family's interests, uh, Dr. Jonathan Gluckman at that time. And it was really through um, talking to some people in the Five Freedoms Forum um, and the Detainees Parents Support Committee and organizations like that that actually brought David um, and his work particularly to my attention um, and seeing an exhibition at the Johannesburg Art Gallery. He was already involved um, with the Market Theatre Foundation and, of course, that was the time when the early work was being done towards setting up the photo workshop. Mm. 1989, yeah, I think, which is when it was founded. later in, in the 80s. Okay. But it was an extraordinary privilege meeting David. I didn't get to know him well for quite some time afterwards, but we would occasionally see one another, sometimes at different gatherings of mutual friends or acquaintances, and of course, from time to time, I saw his work published. Um, and then in the 1990s, we really consciously, um, Linda Givon, then uh, Mrs. Givon, but Linda Goodman of Goodman Gallery, and a couple of colleagues, but pr principally my colleague, uh, 
Kirsty Wesson, who still works for us, but from Ireland, and myself, we really began campaigning with David to try and get him to look at being an exhibitor in an art gallery, especially our art gallery. There had been a couple of museum shows, but... Um, David was resistant to the idea and in true David's fashion would sternly tell us off and say, don't call me an artist. I'm not an artist. I'm a photographer and I'm busy documenting what's happening in this country. It's like building a history. And we said, but of course, but they are brilliant photographs and we do think there, you know, there is an audience. There is a, a place for the exhibition of these works. It took most of the 90s to persuade him of that, and something many people have forgotten, but in fact it was the beginning of discussion towards this show. It took place in 1998, 20 years ago, when David finally said, well, if I'm going to join a gallery and have to agree to make additions and number things and be fussy about how they get exhibited and how perfectly correct the additions are, then stepping into the big white walled gallery is a bridge too far. Will you support an exhibition downtown because I want to do something about fetus? I've always wanted to work about fetus and some of them are shot on color film but I've never printed in color and now they're telling me there's a good color printer that I should try and it'll be experimental. And Linda, of course, wisely said, yes, of course, we'll support it. And to, I think, David's own surprise, the exhibition took place at a club named Carfax almost under the highway in Newtown. That's amazing. So David's first show with the gallery was that in was Carfax. That was our first Goodman Gallery David Goldblatt show. was That's on the amazing. upper level at Carfax. Opened on a Friday night. Um, the club only opened at nine. David was, not what do you mean? That's past my bedtime, even in those <laughs> days. Um, so there was a preview and we had to get clients to come into town. Some of them were a little nonplussed by all of this. David got somebody to help by putting in scaffolding because there weren't many good walls that weren't crumbly. And we hung the works on scaffolding. And it was the first time that some of the photographs taken in the 80s or 90s on color transparency were actually printed in color. Um, the show was probably, I would think, if I'm remembering correctly, about 40% color and 60% in silver gelatin. And it was a project really looking at how, at the time of the destruction of Sophia Town and the creation of Triumph as a suburb, the same thing was being done with Fitas and the edge of Fordsburg and Mayfair to create the new white suburb of Page View. And it was one of the latter parts of forced removals out of the centre of Johannesburg. So it was an apt venue because it was just a couple of blocks down the road. And Peter Magubani came and he actually spoke on that evening, um, partly because he was born just three blocks away from there. And that night of the opening, he and David agreed, "Mm, sometime we should talk about doing a show together. 20 years ago. (laughs) Amazing. You spoke about how you, in the early days, campaigned to try and get David to exhibit with you. Yeah. What was so important about David at that time? Why did you have so much faith that he was meant to be in this space? Yes. I think because, in particular, Linda knew um, about a couple of shows of her works and, and really bodies of photographic essay that I hadn't been aware of yet um, until after I joined the gallery that had gone to Australia on exhibition um, to Canada on exhibition, and also to um, the Johannesburg Art Gallery, 
where he actually also had donated a body of work. And there had, I believe, also at that point been an, a small exhibition in the National Gallery. So let's put it this way. There was already a precedent for okay. having groups of his photographs very consciously, thematically put together. Mm. And certainly once we started in a couple of the – we were quite junior staff at that stage, and Linda and her then co-director, Gerard – we're saying, you know, if we were going to get a photographer, he's really the one we should be getting. Linda did deal a little with John Brett Cohen. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. There were, there were one or two photographers whose work had been in the gallery. Mm. But we all very quickly could see and we understood and we agreed that there was a, a focus of intent in David's work. They were consciously built as groups that made a body of work in the way that an artist would approach them. I have always said, really, for the last 25 years, David was the the photographer for me, even in my growing awareness of some great photographers ab abroad who were working as artists. David was the first artist using photography. He probably wouldn't like me calling him that, but who made me look again because I would realize I had looked, but I hadn't seen. You could feel his personality through the lens. You could feel his intention through the way his subjects re related to his lens and to what he was asking, perhaps, or telling them or discussing with them. And even in his unpopulated photographs, cityscapes, landscapes, there was a distinctive ability to find a particular intention and sometimes you had to search in that photograph for the little moment or the little thing or the little object the little subject that really convinced you that this was somebody who looked not with a point and click attitude not with a I'm just going to grab this shot because I've seen it but who had the patience to wait and distill very specific meaning with an intention that the completion of the circle would be the viewer understanding a concept I recently saw the David Goldblatt documentary film that was produced by the Goodman Gallery owner Lisa Esses and Josh Ginsberg and directed by Daniel Zimbler. I saw you made a, an appearance, Neil. <laughs> um, there are a few things that were said that I wanted to ask your opinion about. Mm. So David spoke a lot about his work during the apartheid era, um, saying that he could have done more, could have been more political, but he didn't know how. He said, I didn't know how to respond. I was in despair. What do you think of that? Do you think he could have done more? How might that have affected the way that his work was received? I think this exhibition, and in fact Peter and David in the lead-up to this exhibition in the few months that thankfully they did meet occasionally to talk about the show, spoke at length um, to us and in the little short film we've been showing here as well about how differing their approaches were to both telling a similar story about the same country but using such different approaches to their photography and using different kinds of camera actually very specifically as well and I suppose everyone could say I, I certainly can sit back and say my gosh I could have done more but not everybody perhaps had the capacity to be a frontline photographer in the way that somebody like Peter Magubani was or that Paul Weinberg himself was. Mm. And David spoke a lot about how he started going into Soweto very specifically, frequently, two years before the 76 riots, because he believed it was, as he called it, a pot on a stove about to boil over. 
And he wanted to be able to photograph the things that spoke to the frustrations of the time and that were, in his mind, going to cause an upheaval. Mm. He did take some photographs of the upheaval, but he wasn't a frontline at the riots photographer. But he then also took a great deal of photographs about the aftermath and what happened leading up to the states of emergency and documenting trials. And so I think he adopted a kind of narration rather than a frontline action photographer stance. And he pretty much did keep a more formal, almost portraiture approach to his work throughout. His style of work differed greatly from Peter's in that way. As to, I said to David, you know, you were in so many dangerous places and situations at a time when many other people in the country would not have dared venture anyway. And maybe you weren't a frontline photographer and maybe you weren't caught in the crossfire and you weren't one of those people, thank God, that were killed or shot and wounded. But you very successfully documented the history anyway. I think he always felt, and he spoke in this little film that we've had here, saying, I was in awe of Peter Michael Barney, how Peter was always right at the heart of the worst things that were happening right there. Of course, he had a different relationship to his wife and his family, and he was doing a lot of this photography without the news photograph. David wasn't um, employed by Time magazine and the Rand Daily Mail, as someone mm. like Peter was. He was funding a lot of his things himself and taking commissions, but even some of his commissioned work on Zimbabwe, for instance, with the uh, then South African editor for The Telegraph, they made a supplement together about issues in Zim, and that got banned, not only in Zimbabwe, but also in South Africa. Sure. So the degree of pressure may have been different, but I think actually that David took a very brave and principled and considered stance throughout his life. Mm. In one of the texts on the wall, David says that he didn't participate in the front lines because that was the stuff of media. And I think, you know, when we talk about media, often we think about popular media. We think that art is the binary of that. That's, that's on the other end of the spectrum. And do you think that's why potentially his artwork finds its space in the art realm as opposed to being the stuff of media? And, um, how do you think that documentary photography, photojournalism and contemporary art intersect? <laughs> So, so yes, I do think, in fact, probably that there was a more receptive audience to his not having the news images that flashed on television or on the front pages of the newspaper. So by the time he sometime later got inside galleries or he had works in museums, they were seen from a slightly different angle to the news documentary kind of things anyway. Um so that partly answers your previous question as well, I suppose. But yes, I I do also think that it's probably the reason why, in a way, out of that brace of photographers active at the time, he eventually saw his work within a gallery kind of context and museum shows and books and photo essay books rather than just random selections of prints and, and what have you. So perhaps in a way it was gearing more towards a, an art gallery or a contemporary art sense of things. He still, yeah, he still had his doubts around the idea of photography of, even of his kind. Um, he would look at someone like Mikhail Sabotsky and say, no, Mikhail is an artist who uses photography, but I'm not that kind of an artist, which I also understand. But I think we are at a juncture 
particularly in the last 20 years, not only in this country, but in other parts of the world too, where news and media and documentary photography and the fine arts have intersected more and more closely. And in fact, even where And something crazy came to mind, but the Blair Witch Project came up once in a conversation with David and a couple of other photographers. He said, yes, I can see that. You know, the invented sort of horror story of a dreadful experience in the woods is is kind of like TV fodder and news story, but it's also being made as an artwork, except it's a populist artwork. Yeah. But are we not seeing this kind of thing feeding into the art world and into the nature of photography as well? And he was correct. And in fact, I think increasingly that is still the case. So also in this film, I can't remember if David says it or someone else in the film, but he's referred to as grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever experience this aspect of his personality? And can you maybe describe his personality a little bit further? Yes, absolutely. I think one of the words um, that is possibly used most frequently by David about himself, by some some parts of his family, and certainly by most of the people who've worked with him, is grumpy. Um, <laughs> and, um, but it's used with affection, um, oddly enough. And and in some kind of way, I think David rather prided himself on being a bit grumpy, as he would say, "You know, I'm 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 a busy man. I've got lots of photographs to take, and I've got things to do." He didn't suffer long conversations he didn't do small talk Um, he would enjoy dinner if there was a hearty discussion of sort but it would be like this is time to eat now and then right while I've done with the meal and that was a lovely conversation goodbye it's my bedtime I'm going home now (laughs) Um, and I think briskly businesslike is kind of the the typical way in which one felt David approached his life. But it was also because he very much was a man on a mission. I called and chose out of some of the writing about him that title, The Pursuit of Values, for the show at the Standard Bank that I worked on with David, because his whole life was a a pursuit using photography to show how our personalities, our architecture, our countryside, our interpersonal relations all spoke about the shifting values of South Africa and how he saw the country change between 1948 when he started photographing and this year when he um, when his his biggest complaint about the fact that he knew he was dying was that he still had a lot of photographs to take and he was really grumpy about the fact that he couldn't get them done um but avuncular is another word that a lot of people did use about David he he would be like your stern uncle or grandfather telling you, no, 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 don't waste time with that. You should be trying this and come on, let's get on with it. Let's not, no more waffle. Let's just get on and make this project or make this book or do whatever it is, you know, no more delay. He He was a man in a hurry right up till the end of his life because he always felt he had lots to do. Something I've been thinking about recently is how most artists have this incessant urge to make or create. And I think Def- David definitely had that. And even in the last few years of his life, uh, until, I mean, how long before he passed was he photographing? Well, I think he took his last group of photographs outside the city about seven weeks sure. before uh, he passed away and he was still planning getting better and doing other photographs up until maybe two or three weeks before wow. when, when he started having to be really focused on making sure that 
his trust and his legacy were going to be correctly set up and and accepting that he was on his way out. So yeah, I mean, even in the last few, few months, weeks of his life, he was still traveling around in his RV and creating. And there's a scene in the documentary, which is just very moving, where he climbs onto the roof of his RV and he's it's an obvious struggle for him, but he still does it. It takes a really long time and it's quite, quite a pained experience to watch the slow way that he climbs onto the roof of his RV, but he still, he still does it. And that's the kind of urge and obsession that I think defines a great artist. I think it really is. And despite David's protestations about not wanting to be called or seen as an artist, I think he grew more and more into that role over the last 20 years of his life. He began to think about and plan work in terms of an exhibition and in terms of what groups of works perhaps hadn't been shown before and how to reprint them in what scale and for which venue. He began to think more and more like an artist despite his own protestations and it geared him up. So, uh, and once people like Steidl wanted to reproduce and reprint some of his out-of-print books. Then he began to think of, right, so I did a book called Structures, and that was about the structures and the values and the architecture of a time when we were a country under the dominion of first colonization and then a nationalist apartheid government. Now I want to do more structures, but I want to do the democracy structures. And he began a whole new body of work, some of which are extraordinary and many of which are as sharply critical of current thinking and current policy and what have you as the earlier ones had been, but just from a different angle and different point of view. So yes, I think that creative urge never, never died, not not until he drew his last breath. Yeah. And I know what you mean. I mean, we have some footage, and I've got a couple on my own WhatsApp, of him the last, very last time that he visited the gallery um, and of course, in this film that was showing here with him yeah. and Peter Magobani propping each other up, and David is heard to say, I don't know who's weaker, you or me, oh. but come on, take my arm and we'll get up these stairs. And physi physically struggling to walk, physically battling with um, moving himself, but he never let that stop him, yeah. right up to the end. For as long as he was able physically to walk, he came to meetings, he would go outside, he would look, he would walk around and look at the exhibitions in the gallery, he would comment on the lighting and how maybe he would want it differently, he would think about another photograph, another trip or another journey that he wanted to make to put something else into his own oeuvre. Absolutely, he thought like an artist and he was a great artist yeah. no matter what he said. So what do you think the, his resistance towards that title was? What did it carry for him? I think David felt in some kind of way that having something machined or industrialized that you used, like a camera, was not the same artisanal sort of thing as, as um, somebody using their hands and their innate talent to use a pencil or a pen or a brush or a carving tool or a, a modeling and a potter's wheel or, or, you know, he would see other people producing things, as he said, with no other tools than their medium and their materials. And he would say, that's art. But, you know, I'm using cameras and technology and I'm making pictures and 
you, it, it's not the same thing. I say, I'm not an artist. I'm, I'm just a photographer. And I, re I remember Linda and certainly Lisa a number of times saying, David, don't say just or merely. You are a great photographer and yeah. photography is art and you are a great artist. But he remained resistant to that. He, he was a modest man in lots of ways. And David had a powerful enough ego to be able to believe in and push for his own work. But he was humble enough to actually see the value in something really handmade by someone else as superior in some way to things he was doing. I mean, David's bodies of work is too extensive and prolific to speak about individually, <laughs> but I wanted to ask which series is your favorite and which is most compelling to you? Well, that's a, it is a big question. Um, and there are thousands of, of photographs and grouped in uh, amazing bodies of works. Um, I think there is a body of small photographs which were taken in the valley called Dehel, which Andre Brink famously wrote about, and David went in the 60s, twice, 66 and 68, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and photographed this isolated, very distinct um, community of Afrikaans farmers, farming people who had lived a very quiet, very almost Amish existence in some way. And he made such a heartfelt essay about their life, their closeness to the land, their, their in inability somehow to see themselves as divorced from a community spirit and their relationship to the land and their reluctance almost to engage with an outside world. And yet they were incredibly hospitable to him and curious as to why he even found them interesting. And it all comes through in the works. Um, I do own one of those photographs, and it is one of the first things I got, uh, I acquired of David's. So I suppose it is something that still has a very special place in my heart. But there is a body of work which I looked at with David on a few occasions over about 15 years, and he finally agreed to print, also in small, almost postcard size, and they were of his travels in the 70s through the really rural parts of the Transkei. He felt so passionate about what he saw as the disappearance of a way of life, a tradition, a, a strong sense of community that the 20th century Western world was bringing to bear influences that were shutting this down. People were building tin shacks instead of making beehive houses, which were environmentally and climatically better for them, and being herded and shepherded in some way into little township things rather than roaming in the countryside in the slightly more nomadic way they always had. And he made it almost as a work of melancholy, a set of work that said this is a beautiful way of life, which what we have brought to this country is actually destroying. And the people whose lives and livelihoods and style of living is being destroyed don't even seem to realize it. They are very, very moving photographs for me, and I still love those works. You spoke about the melancholic tone of David's work in that series. Would you say that that extends to a large part of his work, or do you think there are different tones of celebration, melancholia? How would you describe the tone? It's interesting because we have had the comment from a number of people that a lot of the work was depressing. 
But actually, I don't see the work that way. I think there are a lot of celebratory works, even even at the height of what he called his feeling in despair. There is a lot of work that spoke of being angry and being outraged at injustice. And But there are even then a lot of very positive work, work that took portraits. There's, there's a work from 1948 of a couple, a mixed-race couple, an elderly man and woman who he would see every day meeting and holding hands and smoking together in Jubair Park and when he tried to take their photographs she always hid her face with a hat and because the law had just changed and they were in danger they knew they were maybe not going to be able to live in the same place together anymore and so there's a melancholy to it but there was something celebrating their love about it as well. There are works of sweetness and happiness of children, amusing things. Um, you know, a little kid with his toy water pistol holding up a black man in, in a hillbrow and the man playing along and clearly a relationship between the man and the child that would be perhaps considered unusual or different. Children at play form a part of things sometimes and particularly in his book Particulars, where with something of a wry sense of humor, he's photographing rather bodily particulars of individuals, um, you know, very gold chains in, on hairy chests or ladies in slightly daring and risque clothing or uh, very overly conscious of how many their miniskirt is that, that do speak of a sense of humour as well. And even in that body of work in the trans sky, there is the work that I've maybe out of everything is one of the ones that I've always remembered and remembered the story. It was David setting up to take some photographs at a little tiny trading store in the middle of nowhere in the trans sky in I think 1974 or 72 people coming and going and an old woman sitting on big raised up roots of a, of a huge old tree nearby watching the coming and going and who eventually said to him Mungu, you know what what are you doing come on what what are you doing why are you making this stand and your machines and she wasn't even really sure about the camera and he was under a black hood and then back out again so he showed her a contact proof or print from something he had shot a few days before. And he said, I'm making photographs and I'm telling a story about the trans guy. And she said, but you're making a picture of the shop and the ice cream sign and the man with the firewood. The, why do you not want to make beautiful pictures? And he said, oh, I think some of these things are beautiful. Uh, sometimes I make up my mind about things that are beautiful that other people don't think they're beautiful. But that's what I'm trying to photograph. I want to maybe show people that sometimes what they've gone past without even really looking at it is actually beautiful. And he said there was a long pause where she sort of huffed herself up and pulled her blanket around her and straightened her headdress. And she said to him, indimply, I am beautiful. And he said, so I walked back to my camera, turned the tripod, put myself under the hood and made two photographs. And you know what? She was. And I love that story. And it is a beautiful photograph. And she is like a national monument. This yellowy skinned, wrinkled old lady, but with pride and fierce uh, eyes and a smile. And it really is an exceptional portrait of somebody who was no one famous or noteworthy for anything particular other than that she was interested in what he was doing and why he chose what he chose to photograph. And then she wanted to be photographed. And he was right. She was beautiful. Did you tell the story at his memorial? I did in a shorter way. You but did yes, because while you're talking, it. it sounds so familiar. And I was like, "Is this was that in the documentary? I don't no, think so." I, I just spoke felt of it at the, yeah, at the memorial. Service. Yes, it's a beautiful story. 
that's actually Neil that's my favorite part of talking to you is how anecdotal your stories are and you seem to have a really close relationship with David and you, you've actually mentioned so many anecdotes throughout this interview actually but can you recall a, a special anecdote about David something a personal anecdote we really became friends over the years and one of the things I've cherished about working in this gallery and in the art world in general is that at a young point in my life, I probably never realized how many old friends I would have. And I don't necessarily mean long-standing friends, but even better, the old friends of long-standing like David, who in his own way would be critical sometimes and try and teach me uh, about a better, quicker, more considered eye, you know, make a quick judgment, but do it with better information. And so he was certainly to be cherished for that. But he also was a man whose principles were incredibly strong. And I was immensely proud of being his friend for so many reasons. And so, so many things that, that I think he learned about and put his photography to work in the service of much bigger causes than any of us. You know, speak of can do more. My God, we could all do more. And David yeah. made me think that way about myself all the time. I could do so much more, but he was just amazing. But perhaps the story I do love so very much is that I think his son Ronnie spoke about at the at the memorial as well. But on David's 80th birthday, he chose a small group of us. And I was very, very honored to be one of those people with Joe Ratcliffe and his wife, Lily, and his daughter, Brenda, and son, Ronnie, and Ronnie's great uh, friend, Leslie. And they organized to hire a combi. And David said, well, you know, they said I should do a lunch party. And I thought, I'm doing it my way. Come on, Lil, tell them. And Lily had to tell us that we were doing a sort of Goldblatt road trip. For day. <laughs> so we all presented ourselves at the house, got lemon tea and water and what have you, and Ronnie arrived with the combi, and off we all piled into the combi and drove up the highway, and it had to be a surprise. No one was allowed to know where we were going. And David said, well, I've put my wife through this agony for years. She's gone on all these trips, and she's had to eat roadhouse food. So here we are as we got past Midrand and towards Centurion. Turn off here, Ron. And off we went to the car park of Steers. And the people at the Steers, which he has eaten at many times, apparently, on setting off on road trips, had the sort of center island of their restaurant, little <laughs> fenced off, with a red and white checkered kind of Italian bistro tablecloth. He had set up a big samovar so that proper good Russian tea could be served. But there were ice buckets with a Verve Clicquot, and we all got burgers and chips, Verve Clicquot, and Russian tea. For Amazing. lunch. And the conversation was brilliant. A couple of people came to meet us there. John Fleetwood from the Mocha Theatre Photo Lab spoke very movingly about David. And a couple of other people tried, but David was just poo-pooing. He was like, no, come on, we're just here to have fun. It was so typical of David. He rather liked the fact that his quirky birthday lunch was going to be the centre of attention, but he didn't really want to be the centre of attention. And he didn't want too much speechifying or anything like that. And then he thanked us all vociferously the whole way home for coming and joining his party. And it was so much about the man. David was an original. A true blue, never to be repeated original. You just spoke about the Market Photo Workshop. Um, David founded it in 1989, leaving us with a photography school that has produced some of the most influential photographers of our time, including Zanele Mecholi, Jody Bieber, and Sabella Mlangeni. Do you remember that time? Tell me oh, a bit more indeed. about it. So over the years, sometimes he would say to me, you have to come and look at this photographer. Jabulani Dlamini, who's now on show in our Cape Town yes. Gallery, came through there as well. And David was 
very concerned to make sure that he did mentor him and that he had an opportunity to get into a gallery. Even the people who've helped run that over the years, so people like John Fleetwood, have made a great contribution. Mm. And David continued to work with the, the photo lab even after his formal role was less intensive. And I think that over the years we've seen many a show there. He inculcated also a principle from the word go. And David also became a trustee of the Theatre Trust and of the gallery at the Market Theatre. And for a time there were a group of us with Stephen Hobbs and mm. Joni Brenner and Thea Soggett that we worked really to try and revive the fortunes of the gallery. And David remained involved with those things and he was determined to see that the photo lab the theatre and the gallery could stand for something, could be a beacon of principle in the Johannesburg of those days. And that for me is also incredibly important. But he also served on things like acquisitions committees for the Johannesburg Art Gallery. He was their first photographer involved with advising the curators and the committee and then being involved in evaluating and, and making purchases of photography for the gallery. Um, and that given his own kind of protestation about yeah. being an artist <laughs> Um, is an interesting one. And he made a great contribution there too. And these kind of things people didn't even really know about because he didn't talk about them. He, they were kept fairly confidential and David didn't go around blowing his own trumpet in, in lots of ways. But I think his influence on a number of young photographers and people he mentored and people who got an opportunity to, with little resource, go through the photo lab and aspire to documentary, um, newspaper and art careers, there's an incalculable legacy in that as well as in his own visual work that he's left behind. That's a great lead into my last question, which is, what do you think will happen to David's legacy and his work post his death? I can tell you this, that David's career has been one of the stellar careers in this gallery, ever, virtually ever since he joined. Um, Linda and then Lisa afterwards developed very good relationships with David, worked closely with him in terms of trying to frame the next publication, the next projects. He is now in the collections of something like 37 major museums around the world wow. and big bodies of work in some of those museums and private foundations. They have bought substantially and bought into the work and there are big books on photography that now feature him that had this kind of career not come to him late in his life, it might have taken even longer to get into that side of things. But there is no sign of that dying down and in fact the next big project, which thankfully he has been working towards, for maybe close to two years already, but the biggest ever show, bigger even than the one that's just recently closed at the Pompidou in Paris, is to be in October opening in Sydney at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and that is 640-odd photographs. Wow. And there are more being planned. The interest in his work has risen and risen and risen and is certainly not dying away. His main physical archive will begin being sent and housed at Yale, but there is to be a digitized version of the archive. Despite his upset over works being burned at UCT, he understood enough about the conflicts that are still within South Africa to say, well, 
We want to protect the physical work, but there should be a digital archive. There should be research facilities. The works and the histories and the correspondences should all be accessible to scholars and researchers. So that will be accessible still through UCT eventually. All of that process, he has been very careful to document in his trust and his deeds of trust and his legacy will be well protected in that he has also been very adamant always that once he's died, what exists in print is what exists in print. No further editions, no posthumous editions are allowed to be made. Interesting. And there will be no rights for anybody. His heirs have a big body of work which um, is being passed on and those will remain and will remain in the art field and will be exhibited and loaned and sent to museums and exhibitions all over the world. But no new numbered editions, no more posthumous unsigned prints. So in a way that boosts the legacy, um, I think it protects the integrity of what has been left behind. There are so many amazing photographs that have never yet been seen by anybody there will be shows in the future that those who've been fans of his work will be just as impressed by and will be amazed that they they never got to be exhibited. Some of them have been published in books and some have never yet been published at all, but they will be shown. And I believe that in a hundred years from now, people will still be collecting David Goldblatt's work and they will be, and they are already in some of the world's biggest museums. It will be a legacy that endures and endures and endures. Thank you, Neil. I think it's been so amazing speaking about this man with such integrity and modesty and so inspired by his drive and his urge and his creativity and the contributions that he's made to the South African arts industry. In the gallery, there's this moving, visceral feeling, and I feel like it reflects the weight of the man. Yeah, it's been really wonderful talking to you about him as as a person and not just this great icon that he will be remembered as for the next hundred years. But yeah, David Goldblatt, the man. And thank you for sharing your stories about him. It's a, it's a great story and it's a moving story. And you're right. I think Paul Weinberg, I have to say, I salute for his selection and curation of this show has been amazing because it really, it shows the two approaches from Magubani and Goldblatt so differently and has illustrated really well that Peter, as a frontline action photographer, was sometimes hiding a 35 mil camera in a, in a bunny chow or a half a loaf of bread to stop that from being one confiscated or broken or film exposed by the police and and running with something, you know, you couldn't have a hustle blot and a tripod and a hood and what have you. So he had one very particular approach to his gathering the news and being determined to actually show literally what was happening as it happened. And whereas David wanted to make these very seriously considered portraits of places, spaces, people, precursors and aftermaths of one will. So he used very different equipment and he took a very different attitude. But I think that what this exhibition has been very fitting as a memorial to Peter, who's really now elderly and infirm and struggling with Alzheimer's, and David, who of course passed away just five weeks before the show was being put up. But he has captured the heart of what each of those men stood for with their photography and, and how differently their approaches were to making work about the same kind of histories and the same kind of stories of South Africa. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode and I love chatting to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Anthea. Thank you to Neil for sharing his memory of David with us. David will be celebrated and his legacy will remain for decades to come. Rest in peace, David. 
Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe to Unframed on the iTunes library and leave a review. Also, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Unframed Podcast. Till next time, bye.